Welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and as always, my co-host Adam is here. Adam, how are you doing? Good. Let's just dive into the biggest story of the week here. Uh, Microsoft is set to acquire Zenith Media, which is the company that owns the game publisher Bethesda for about $7.5 billion. Um, it seems like this one really did shake the gaming industry. Uh, Bethesda is a massive company known for titles like Doom, Skyrim, Fallout, uh, just to name a few. Uh, and I just, to me, I really wasn't expecting this to come, but it seems like Microsoft has been on an acquisition train for game publishers for a few years now. Um, so what is your read on this? Uh, as you know, Microsoft continues to essentially, I think, dominate a lot of the, the game game development space. Well, there are uh, still a ton of studios that are independent. There's a, a bunch of studios that are, are mm-hmm. owned or contracted with Sony. So, you know, it, this definitely tips the balance in for Microsoft a little bit as we are ramping up to the launch of both the new Xbox consoles and uh, the PS5. This actually happened just days before the Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S went on uh, went up for pre-order. A number of these um, of these of titles from Bethesda were slated to be timed exclusives for the PS5. Microsoft said that they will honor those for the time being, um, but as things go forward, it, it'll be on sort of a case-by-case basis. I think this really helps build up the Microsoft uh, Xbox Game Pass, which is really Microsoft's strategy going into the next generation of consoles. They uh, obviously are selling hardware and games in the same ways that that normally you would buy them for $500 or $300 up front and $60 or $70 a game. But their emphasis this generation is really on Game Pass, which is a $15 a month subscription service that gives you access to a couple of hundred games at any given time. And um, what this means is that uh, the Bethesda all of the Bethesda titles, um, again, obviously, except for the ones that are exclusive to the PS5 because of existing contracts, will be part of Game Pass going forward. Um, it just makes Game Pass really attractive from a player perspective. The idea that you would buy, let's say, the new Fallout for $70 on the PS5 um, or just be, be paying $15 a month to play it on, on Xbox, uh, it starts to make Xbox look really appealing from a financial perspective and from the perspective of of hardcore triple a gamers absolutely i just had this under like this, this undercurrent of we're never going to own anything ever again <laughs> uh we're just gonna we're, we're, we're just gonna pay anywhere from five to 15 to you know 30 dollars whatever it might be for a subscription that just gives us access to um whatever content you want whether, whether that like that's games or media or movies uh, to me, it just seems like this the whole media industry is shifting towards subscriptions. The interesting thing about this console generation is that Microsoft is pushing this new subscription strategy, which I, I think will be pretty successful. Um, and Sony is going, you know, a classic uh, a classic strategy of sell of, of sell you the razor and then sell you the blades. Um, and I, it's just interesting mm-hmm. that they're very different strategies. And I think it's potentially possible for them both to succeed and for a lot of gamers to have access to both consoles um i think the interesting question will be uh you know for for sony it's like if if gamers do end up with access to both platforms 
they will probably choose Xbox for any games that come under Game Pass because there's not really a reason to buy it on your PlayStation if you have access to it on your Xbox. Um, right. Where that might start to break down is when there there is multiplayer and you want to play with your friends. If it doesn't support crossplay, that might start to be a problem. Right. Well, so I was just thinking about that, knowing that Microsoft continues to own so many major, essentially studios that are producing like these AAA games that are either known for campaigns or have great multiplayer. Um, I feel like that's just one more segment where crossplay can potentially happen more easily. I think that Microsoft, this is not about Microsoft making Bethesda titles exclusive to Xbox. I think that they will happily sell you Fallout for your PS5. Um, I think they just Mm want to make it cheaper and more convenient for players to play them on Xbox. Um, I think right. that they, they still want to reach those PS5 users for those AAA games. Honestly, the economics of a AAA game don't make sense unless you can reach all of the players. So as long as Sony still has a sizable base, uh, I think Microsoft will try to reach them with with these games as well. And I think they will they will push and enable crossplay for all these games because they while they want you on Xbox in, in an ideal world, they're not going to forego the revenue of having people on right. pay $70 a pop on, on PS5. Yeah. It's a good strategy for Microsoft. Um, they're monetizing not only <laughs> their console, but they're monetizing their competition. So uh, bravo to them. Uh, and just to round out this section, if you happen to have gotten a pre-order for one of the new Xboxes this week, uh, let us know because I'd love to give you a virtual high five because that was almost near impossible uh, to do. In other news, uh, partnerships happening in the streaming world, uh, Peacock has finally launched on Roku across the U.S. Uh, So Peacock has finally become available on Roku on Monday, with nearly 10 weeks after it launched, uh, as Roku and NBCU finally have negotiated a broad deal that includes renewing the deal to keep NBC's TV everywhere channels on Roku and the addition of NBC content to the Roku free channel. Uh, so Adam, were you surprised about this? Did you just kind of see it coming? Is this kind of like yeah, more of an update? I, mean, I, I think everybody saw this coming. This is probably all going to get resolved before the holidays. Um, we had both Peacock and HBO Max launch without support on Roku and Amazon's Fire TV. HBO Max is still missing on those platforms. I think that'll get resolved before the holidays because frankly, um, the issue is uh, for the, the the platforms for Roku and, and Fire TV, uh, holidays are a time when a lot of people will be buying more of these devices and they just can't afford to be missing out on two of the major streaming platforms. Um, it just, you know, when you do a comparison and there's an option sitting there, uh, whether that is an Apple TV or a Chromecast that does have access to everything, it just starts to make them... Um, you know, not as competitive and not as appealing. And that purchase, you don't want to miss out on that purchase because even though Roku's and Fire TV sticks uh, sell for very little money, uh, people also don't want to replace them that often. So once that thing is plugged into your TV, even if it was only 25 or 30 bucks, uh, you're not going to want to uh, worry about changing it again. So uh, I think, you know, this is a, it, it, it just makes sense for everybody um, to, to work out these deals. So speaking of Roku, we actually did a media trial uh, in collaboration with them and Magna. Uh, it's titled Valuing the Value Exchange, uh, and, and, and it demonstrates how brands can really enhance the consumer relationships and build equity uh, by aiding TV streaming content discovery. Uh, so for more information on that, we'll have a link in the show notes, uh, but it's a great little brand insight for you know all of our marketers out there uh, that are looking to figure out how they can leverage OTT and streaming uh, within their media plan. 
And to round out our conversation here, Adam, uh, we have an announcement from Spotify. They have added an interactive feature for podcasters with the launch of the product called Polls. So now Spotify users can answer the questions and view how their answers stack up with the rest of the listener base. Uh, All votes uh, are optional and are actually anonymous. So it's a great way for podcast creators to kind of engage with their listeners and collect feedback all within the Spotify platform. Um, And I think it's a great, I think it's a great product. Uh, It's something that we haven't really seen uh, from an innovation standpoint in the podcasting space before, uh, just given how things are fragmented and where people listen. So uh, I think it's a, another feather in the cap for Spotify on how they're going to be positioning themselves to be competitive in the podcasting space. Yeah, I think it's a cool um, example of the kinds of features that Spotify can build owning both the distribution and the app that users are using to listen to podcasts. Um, the only other company that really could do that is Apple um, and uh, that has the scale that would matter. Um, and, in you know, as, as we've spoken about many times, Apple has been a has been a benevolent uh, ignorer of the podcast market for, for, for by and large. Um, so this it's, it's interesting to see Spotify start to innovate and start to, uh, you know, provide good reasons for podcast producers to want to prioritize their platform. And that in turn will, you know, encourage uh, listeners to prioritize their platform. It's actually a very smart execution because if you think about it, if a host is instructing their users to open the app because, you know, you might, you probably have your phone in your pocket if you're walking around or, you know, doing the dishes while you're uh, listening to podcasts. If the host is instructing listeners that, hey, if you're listening on Spotify, pull open the app right now and and answer this poll, it's actually a very smart sort of viral uh, distribution way of getting users to know that if you're not listening on Spotify, you're missing out on something. Um, So I think that's, it's actually pretty clever. I I, to- I totally agree. Um, and like I said, it's these little features and functionalities. I think are what's really missing from the the podcasting space. There is a company called Breaker FM that is essentially known as the social podcast app. So they have a lot of these, you know, maybe not pull directly, but you know, makes it easier to share, comment, like, you know, follow different podcasters and people in the podcasting space. Um, so I think they've done a lot of good work to kind of grow. Uh, what it can, what a podcasting app can do. But Adam, to your point, um, Spotify has a scale and Apple has a scale. And I think that those are the two, you know, behemoths in the room that can really make a difference when it comes to, uh, you know, affecting the larger industry. Um, And even though right now this is being used, you know, as a feature that I think is, um, you know, directly beneficial to the podcast producer and as well as well as to users, uh, this kind of interactivity, if Spotify can prove that people are willing to pull their phone out of their pocket and interact with something, you that could be integrated into podcast advertising at some point as well. Um, mm-hmm. You can imagine there being a direct response ad that it's like when they're doing the ad read, you could pull your phone out and tap a button to save an offer for later, for example, um, and, uh, and be reminded about that down the road that, you know, I think that that could be pretty powerful for, for advertising, just knowing that you can train users to, to take action on an audio ad, uh, could be very interesting. 100%. Um, so of course we'll be following Spotify and their, developments in the podcasting space uh and we'll be reporting back uh, on any new features so with that adam uh i think that about wraps up our news section for the week 
Uh, and we're going to head over and talk to Christina Andronli and Chelsea Fritas uh, about COVID-19's impact on street style. All right. And welcome, listeners, to this week's guest interview section of the podcast. Uh, we have a very special topic. We'll be talking about the evolution of street style uh, and really how that has been impacted and influenced by digital media. And with us to really uh, dive deep in this conversation, we have Christina Andromley, uh from the Lab Strategy Team. So Christina, as always, welcome back to Floor 9. Hi. And of course, we have Chelsea, uh, repeat guest. This is your, your, your second time on the podcast, I believe, this year. Round two. Round two. So Chelsea, welcome back, of course, from the UM strategy team. Uh, and just to dive right into uh, the conversation today, can we, I, I guess, help me as a novice in the world of fashion, what is street style and how is that different than, say, street wear or the mainstream you know, fashion shows that, that I see during Fashion Week in, in New York? Or is there not a difference? Like, How, how is this delineated? So, Scott, first of all, you're no stranger to fashion in that camo sweatshirt. <laughs> that looks fantastic. Well, thank you. <laughs> Very Bape-esque. Um, so I think street style and street wear are two separate, but I would say interrelated things. When we talk about street style, this is really, if you think about uh, editors showing up to shows in the late 90s or early 2000s, and they were showing up in these fantastic clothes that were kind of the legacy of traditional print media, you could also say in a way, um, being photographed showing up, that was kind of the marquee. And then things like um, the sartorialist, for example, taking pictures of people wearing interesting things on the on the streets of Manhattan or other major cities, um, I think put street style and more into public consciousness and made people even more conscious of what they were wearing in public. At any point, you could be photographed. So you want to be wearing, you know, you want to be putting effort in and that could be said, maybe not about everyone, but that was kind of the genesis of street style. When we talk about street wear, that is things like people lining up outside of the Supreme store and drops and collabs between Coca-Cola and Kith and um, interesting takes on luxury. Um, it's not just sweatpants, right? It can be, how can you elevate your everyday experience and be comfortable while still looking tailored and put together? And that's what I think we think about as street wear okay chelsea what, what are your thoughts anything to add to that yeah i would echo what christina says i think street wear is an important subculture of street style street okay. style has always existed it's a reflection also an accelerator of the culture that we live in you know it's the fashion all around us and it's influence from top down and from bottom up so speaking of how street style is influenced uh, one of the really core pillars of today's conversation is understanding how digital media has influenced uh, street style today. If we look back over the past five to 10 years, uh, how have the two of you seen digital media you know, have an impact on street style and where we are today in 2020? 
So I think there was a time when every trend was dictated by the runway and we just don't live in that kind of world anymore. That runway is now TikTok, it's Animal Crossing, it's IGTV. So to answer that question, street style will continue to become more diverse and more personal as it really evolves to meet this digital world. And I think with that shift, it's becoming uh, more personal and there's this expectation to also be more interactive and participatory. I think a lot of the major fashion players they will always hold some level of influence, but that's why we see things like the Gucci model challenge um, popping up from like people on TikTok or the street style challenge like created by Vogue that encourage people to actually express themselves more creatively. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so what I'm really interested in with street style is the is really like that creativity and like the flexibility it comes with, you know, it's really up to any one individual to create their style to your point and i think you know we've kind of talked about this in the past of how information is disseminated you know across culture is that the runway used to be that that point that monoculture of where people kind of got their inspiration but now you're looking to your neighbor you're looking to an instagram blog somebody in the street that's like wow i never would have thought of you know essentially wearing that top with those shoes you know in that hat or something like that and it's like i think there's more to Chelsea's point, creativity and optionality uh, than ever before. Uh, I think people are really looking at essentially these models, these creators, these influencers as like, I I like your personal style. And it's like, we're starting to see a shift towards people wanting to be attached to a person rather than like an entity a little bit, kind of like as we see as like creator and passion economy. Uh, And so in the world of fashion, I feel like street style does that like just phenomenally, you know, it's, it's born out of uh, the ability for anybody to express who they are, how they want to. I think that's exactly right. Like once upon a time, people dressed for a brand and now everyone, no matter how many followers you have is curating their own aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's all, all made possible by digital media, right? All, all through social and uh, essentially this, this access that is provided to individuals to, uh, you know, get their name out there. The interesting thing, too, about digital media that I've seen is that if you think about generationally, and I know everyone can't be put in a box, but if you look at um, Chelsea and I's age group, um, you think about, like, the Everlanes of the world and almost this, like, mono look in a way. But I think the pow- what I've seen that's actually really inspiring about Gen Z, I was listening to this um, podcast with Tim Blanks. And he was talking about how he gets so many questions from younger consumers, either early 20s or in their teens that are using social, using digital archives to look at like the Yoji Yamamoto shows from the early 90s or the late 80s. And they're asking about Margiela and what was it like to go to a Margiela show in the 80s. And um, there's this renewed interest with younger generations towards true fashion i would argue that's like fashion for fashion people and they're looking at that and they're able to interpret it in a really fresh and unique way but they have the interest in it and that's only made possible by by digital who can go back and watch a fashion show i mean that's incredible and they're putting their own unique spin on it and using that really deep fashion knowledge and reinterpreting it in new ways and putting their own spin on it. Yeah, I think self-expression is like non-negotiable for this generation. And to your point, they have inspiration just like at their fingertips, but there's also this appreciation for craftsmanship. And that's what's really been heightened during this pandemic. Like as people have a little more time on their hands to actually like 
you know, harness their crafts <laughs> and like dedicate themselves back to craftsmanship or trying new things or DIYing, we're really seeing like some beautiful creative projects come out of this. And I think fashion has been such an important like beacon for creativity in this time. There's this TikToker, uh, Nava Rose, who actually deconstructs like handbags and makes like corsets out of like old Louis Vuitton, Gucci handbags. And so that is obviously like a best in class example. But I think we're seeing that mindset of like putting their own personal spin on things coming from this younger generation. Like it's not enough to just look like someone else. They have to look like themselves and have their own creative expression. And when you think about street style and kind of this endless quest for newness, it's really interesting how especially Gen Z and younger consumers are, it used to be that you buy a bunch of stuff from Zara because it's cheap and you can wear it once. And that's the way that you define and constantly reinvent yourself to look new and fresh on, you know, on the street or outside a runway. But I think especially the intersection of newness and individuality, but then conscious consumerism for especially Gen Z, I think is super interesting because they're going on Depop and they're talking to people about archives and they're, again, like ripping apart old, old Levi's and putting new patches on them and reinventing it in a way that's sustainable, but also really unique and individual. And I think that's almost what is replacing. That's the replacement mm -hmm. for fast fashion. Interesting. But when we're thinking about how this is like continues to evolve with the impact of digital media um you know what does it mean or do we see it going in a way that will reflect digital clothing in any way shape or form uh do we see like street style becoming not only something that that is happening in the street uh but then also a second wave where it's happening in let's say on instagram digitally uh or I'm not going to go there just yet, but with, with the whole metaverses and how you're defined in that environment. Um, but what, what, I guess, what is this impact that, you know, this whole digital media and digital clothing could have on street style? I feel like it's a whole new, it's a whole new ball game and a whole new environment to play in uh, when it comes to fashion. Yeah. There's no line in 10 years between our digital identity and our physical identity. And I think, and I think that's especially, and I, I'm trying not to use accelerated in the context of things that have happened during the pandemic, but the line has increasingly been blurred given that we are on Zoom all of the time. I just had to take a client call just on the phone and it was the weirdest experience of my life and it felt very analog, right? And I think that you're starting to see the line break down and the implication of that for fashion is that in five or 10 years, I won't think about buying a dress at Barney's as any different than buying a Louis Vuitton skin in Fortnite, for example. There won't, that won't be a separate mental, it's like how when you live abroad and speak a language, you don't think about switching between languages. I think it'll be the same thing with clothes. You won't switch in your mind between buying a dress in a store and buying a dress online. And I think that digital is infinite. And I think 
you know, well, especially living in New York, there's very limited closet space, but, um, right. If you, and even, I think like the next extension of that, that we're seeing moving towards an infinite closet is the depops of the world that allow you to have choice, but without, you know, a huge carbon footprint. I think the third level of that is digital clothes, right? There's very low implications on sustainability and it gives you really infinite choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see very, very easily um, buying a pair of shoes, buying a dress, buying a sweatshirt, whatever it might be. And it comes with a digital good, a digital clone of it, right? Essentially where uh, you buy that to, re- to wear it in the real life. And then you have an augmentation that is for a virtual zoom meeting, a virtual conference, uh, you know, for your TikTok or for your Instagram, you know, whatever like that, like that digital environment might be where you also want to show that off. Um, you know, it, it's just like one more step that can very easily start to blend our two worlds. Um, and to your point of creativity, and I think Chelsea, like this goes back to what, what you were saying before, like street style has given so much creativity to uh, different consumers that, you know, once we start blending digital elements into it, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's endless. Like we're going to be, I don't even know what people are going to be wearing or walking around with, but it's essentially you're blending the art of fashion and style with like, il- like digital illustrations. I mean, you could be wearing anything, uh, and I think that, that that's just one more extension of, you know, expression that we're going to see, um, you know, kind of bubble up across our different platforms in the world of fashion. Well, I think Gen Z grew up not living a different online versus offline life. And we're all kind of playing catch up now that we're living in more digital lives. So from a brand perspective, we know that this is a generation uh, that is essentially defining our culture going forward. Uh, they understand and aware of how products are made. Uh, they're very focused on creating and being creators and this idea of, of individualism. Uh, and so from like a brand perspective, in what ways can they essentially or learn from this uh, and apply that to their marketing? I think that's crucial for brands to evolve. So there really is an opportunity for brands to help people as they renew their sense of purpose, their sense of identity when it comes to fashion. There's an opportunity for brands to inspire shopping and dressing occasions, like partnering with influencers or doing challenges or custom content that provides more purpose around a specific outfit or uh, style. There's also an opportunity to attract through ease and new experiences as we really reimagine what retail shopping is like. Um, AR has been a huge element in when it comes to like being able to interact with specific uh, launches or clothing items. Snapchat reported like a 37% launch or 37% increase in people playing with AR function on their app. I think we'll continue to see brands have to really reimagine how people can interact with their products if it's not going to be in a physical store. And with that also like shoppable social that enables more of a two-way dialogue between consumer and creator. Yeah, I love that, Chelsea. I love the idea of even if you're a non-endemic brand, you can still facilitate creativity in consumers and realize that creativity isn't just for creators anymore. Everyone is a creator and takes pride in their digital and physical presences. And I think um, the other thing I would add to that is even though we're not, you know, watching who's showing up at fashion shows right now because there's not a lot of people showing up at fashion shows and there aren't even that many fashion shows to show up at. I do think that 
aesthetics are still really important to people. People are wanting escape. People are wanting something to look forward to. That was evident in the clothes that were shown at Fashion Week. It wasn't just a bunch of gray sweatpants that went down the Christian Siriano runway. It was really celebratory. And I think that in part of that is give people the ability to express themselves and to celebrate and highlight celebration. And we're all ready to move out of this mindset. Um, and a key way that people express that is through the brands they carry and the clothes they wear. Um, but it's not, I think it, it it's deeper than a surface level aesthetic. I think like the inner beauty of a brand, if you want to call it, is important. And I think there's a ton of opportunity. Absolutely. Well, Chelsea and Christina, thank you so much uh, for your insight into street style and uh, how this has been uh, evolving over the you know course of not only COVID, but uh, these past uh, few years. Uh, so thank you both. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you.